again. I'm here this morning to talk to everybody, but especially to talk to the kids, the ones that are here in the room with us, and the ones that are watching from home, because we're going to talk this morning about a word that you may have heard in church, but might not know exactly what it means. So we know that the Bible is God's word. We talked about that a few weeks ago, and it's important to pay attention to the things that God tells us to do in his word. So in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, Jesus gives us some of his last instructions before going back up to heaven. And this is what he said, starting in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this is something that we pay very close attention to, not just because it's in God's word, but because it's one of the last things that Jesus said before he went back to heaven. And in it, he tells us to go and make disciples. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a disciple? If this is some of Jesus' last instructions to us and he tells us to go make these disciples, we should probably figure out what they are. So to help explain this this morning, I brought my husband Andrew with me. So when Jesus is talking about disciples, he's talking about people who believe in him, who act like him, who think like him, people who are in relationship with him. So to make that a little easier to understand, I thought I would bring Andrew here to ask him a few questions. Now, Andrew, do you root for a certain football team? Yeah. <laughs> and, and which team would that be? Uh, I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan. He's a Minnesota Vikings fan. <laughs> I'm among friends. He is among friends here. I lived south of Philly for like seven years, so you can understand this is really comforting to be around people that don't despise me. <laughs> so much like in the Bible, someone usually teaches you to be a disciple. Andrew, who taught you to love the Minnesota Vikings? Primarily my dad. Okay. Um, I... I grew up um, in Brainerd for mm -hmm. the first seven years of my life, so we watched Vikings games pretty much every weekend after we got home from church, so yeah. mainly my dad. So Andrew was born in Minnesota, but that's not a guarantee that he would be a Vikings fan. His dad is a pretty strong Vikings fan and taught him to be a strong Vikings fan as well. Yes, we've, we've weathered some significant heartbreak together. So. Yes, you have. Yeah. Yes, you have. Do you miss very many Vikings games, Andrew? No, I have spent an unfortunate amount of money to make sure that I could watch them every week. We still have VHS recordings of certain Vikings games at our house that Andrew will rewatch. Some that I've attended, yes. So Andrew acts like a Vikings fan. He watches all the games, he roots for them, he wears their gear. In fact, when Andrew was a little kid and he was being taught to be a Vikings fan, Andrew, tell us what you would do when a Vikings player or a Vikings game would come on TV. I, I had an infatuation with sports when I was a kid, so anytime the Vikings were on, I'd run and grab an old Vikings helmet that I had and a football and sit in the living room and just dream about being a player, even though I obviously was way too small to True <laughs> do story. That. Sometimes that football appears in our living room even today. Because wow. Andrew acts like a Vikings fan. You are fan. really airing some laundry. Yeah. All right. I'm just proving how strong of a Vikings fan you are. But Andrew also thinks like a Vikings fan, okay? So I know that this would be foreign to some people who maybe weren't from Minnesota. Um, but how many of you remember a certain Vikings game that took place on January 14th, 2018, toward the end of the season? 
If you don't remember right off the top of your head, <laughs> Leah remembers. <laughs> if you don't remember, you're going to soon remember as I jog your memory. So this was a significant Vikings game because it was getting toward the end of the season. It was also significant because it was taking place on Andrew's 30th birthday. We were getting to the, down to the very last seconds of the game, and they were just points away from losing. And Andrew was just down in the dumps. And why? 1998. Yeah, he thinks like a Vikings fan. I've been disappointed in the past, so I'm going to be disappointed again. Our season is over. Everything is done. And I, not being a very good Vikings fan, I'm, I'm kind of just loosely affiliated with the Vikings by association, I sat there and said, it's not over till it's over. There can be miracles. In fact, I think I may have sung that song from Prince of Egypt a little bit. There can be miracles when you believe. She doesn't understand. <laughs> we don't win those games. Except... This was the game where in the very last seconds, a pass was thrown to Stefan Diggs. He makes it into the end zone, and it is a Minneapolis miracle. Andrew got the best 30th birthday present ever, and I was proven to be right, but also not a very good Vikings fan because <laughs> most of the time, that is not a game that the Vikings win, and Andrew thought that way because he's been taught to be a Vikings fan. He's experienced it. We just don't <laughs> win those games. <laughs> So when we talk about disciples, it's not always something as silly as being a football fan, but when we're disciples, we're people who believe in Jesus, and someone is walking alongside with us and teaching us how to think like th him and how to act like him and how to fall more and more in love with Jesus as we begin a friendship with him. So let's turn it over to Pastor Corey so he can tell us more about what it means to be a disciple. I didn't, I didn't realize Andrew was going to talk. I thought he was just up there to be your emotional support animal or something. Also, yeah, you pretty much just blew my whole sermon. So I'm not, I'm not going to talk about the Vikings, but uh, yeah, we should have coordinated that better because you said what I'm going to say only much more simply. And, uh, and, and better. So those of you, if you got that and you understand what she's talking about, you can leave. But if you want to hear me talk, then you can stick around and, and see what I have to say too. And, and uh, you know, probably one of the things that she did first was she, she blew my first question because now you guys know the answer, right? If I were to ask you, what is the purpose of the church, what would you say? purpose of the church, I mean, she brought us right to the passage, didn't she? Uh, Jesus is, you know, he calls his disciples after he's resurrected. He's getting ready to go to heaven, and he calls his disciples together, and he gives them the, the famous last words. And, and when people say famous last words, you pay attention, you know, unless they, like, die in a car accident and they swear or something like that, then it's probably not quite so important. But, but for someone who knows that they're going away and they want to leave you with something, when they say famous last words, it's almost like they're saying, this is a, a summary. This is what's really important. Above all else, if you forget everything else that I ever said, remember this. And what did he say to his disciples? He said, go and make disciples. And he said, do it by three things. Number one, go. Number two, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number three, he said, uh, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. In other words, teach them how to obey. So the purpose of the church is to make disciples. And it's very important that we remember that because unless we understand 
why we, were, why we were created, what our main purpose is, then it's really easy for us to get distracted by other things. And trust me, as a pastor, it's really easy to do that. It's really easy to, to sort of gauge the success of my ministry or gauge the success of our church based on how many people are coming on Sunday mornings, how great the worship service is, how many people we have in small group, you know, all of those things, or, or even just to, to make people happy. Don't rub, ruffle too many feathers. Make a good living for myself. But when we lose sight of our primary calling, then we start to go astray and we start to focus on other things. And so that leads us then to ask two critical questions. And again, Abby already answered them. Okay, kind of. Um, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And then the second question is, is how does it happen? How does it work? Well, we're going to spend more time on the first one than the second one. We're going to give some hints at the second one. And then um, in future weeks, we'll talk a little bit more about, about how we make disciples. But, uh, but we'll, we'll t spend a little time a answering that question. What does it mean to be a disciple or what does it look like? What does a fully formed disciple look like? Now, throughout history and even in different churches today, churches answer that question in different ways. Uh, for instance, there are some churches who answer that question by saying that a disciple is someone who knows and is committed to the truth. Now, the truth is something that's always been important for the church. In fact, you look at the first probably 400 centuries, uh, 400 years, four centuries of, of church history, much of what they were doing, the early church fathers and, and councils and that that were getting together, they were trying to uh, sort of uh, be able to articulate what is the truth of Jesus. And so it's an important thing and it's not new. But in the modern world, much of how we think about truth actually comes from a guy named Rene Descartes. Have you heard of Rene Descartes before? Okay, he was the guy who said, I think, therefore I am. And basically what he was saying was, was that what it means to be human is to be able to think rationally and to discern the truth. And the church kind of joined along and they said, well, if, if what's really important, if what it really means to be human is to be able to discern the truth, then we've got the best truth of all, don't we? We've got Jesus who says, I am the truth. And so let's go with that. Let's teach people the truth. And, and the church kind of went along with that. Now, there's a lot of good about that. We need to know the truth. In fact, Jesus says the truth will, will set you free. Okay? But there also were some unintended consequences of focusing exclusively on the truth. For instance, if knowing the truth and having better and more precise doctrine or greater knowledge of Scripture was really what being a disciple is all about, then churches actually started dividing over little points of doctrine. Uh, not even, you know, some of the, the major ones, but just these little, uh, these little points that, that Christians disagree about. And all of a sudden, we started new churches on the basis of those things because, hey, if if being a disciple means getting to the truth, then we've got to be the most truthful of all. And if you're not as truthful as we are, if you don't know the truth as well as we do, then we're going we're gonna to split over that. Um, and in fact, there are many people who are very sure that they are right about truth and about all of the details of doctrine, but they don't look very much like Jesus. So truth is important, but it's not all that there is to it. And so we know that, some, that a disciple can't just be someone who knows the truth. And so oftentimes then we say not only is a disciple someone who knows the truth, but also someone who makes good choices based on that truth. 
Okay, and in fact, this is what you see like from the Puritans, for instance, or actually our own tradition. We consider ourselves to be a holiness church, a holiness denomination. And a lot of this has to do with making good choices based on the truth. In fact, when I was growing up, that was the, the primary focus of our church. That was what I was taught growing up, that what's really important is that you do the right thing. Okay, don't smoke and swear and, and all of those sorts of things. Don't play cards. Um, and if you do all of those things, you make good choices, then you're a good disciple of Jesus. And, and that's great. I think we should all make good choices based on the truth. But the problem is, is that my choices were oftentimes detached from any kind of a real relationship for, with God. In fact, I would say that the relationship that I did have with God was primarily based on fear that if I didn't make the right uh, that if I didn't make the right choices, then God would not love me anymore. Okay? And I know that that's not the message that people intend to give, but oftentimes that's one of the unintended consequences of it. And so then we take it a step further, and, uh, and, and we realize that there's another problem when it comes to making good choices, and that is, is that oftentimes, even when I know the right choice to make, I oftentimes seem unable to actually make that choice, to actually do what I'm supposed to do. Anyone ever have that problem before? Yeah, we, sometimes it's easy for us to know what we should do, and just not be able to do it. And so what did we do? Then we start to focus more on power. And we say, if we just call down power from the Holy Spirit, then he'll give us the power to be able to do it. And so what it means to be a disciple is someone who lives in the Holy Spirit. Well, the problem with that is, is that even the most charismatic of people who, who pray in tongues and heal people and all of that still oftentimes have a hard time developing godly character. Right? Now, of course, we could add other things to the list. Today, there are many people who would say that, that working for justice is what makes someone a disciple. And so when we, we feed the hungry and we get the homeless into houses and we work for racial justice, well, that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Some people might focus on evangelism, that if we are out there winning souls for Jesus, if we are telling the good news to seek in, that Jesus came to seek and to save, save the lost, then we're being good disciples. Him, I'm sure that you guys could probably add to that list. Okay? Well, none of those things is necessarily wrong. In fact, there's, there's truth in, in all of them. They're all kind of part of what it means to be a disciple. But actually, all of them are inadequate in themselves to tell us what a disciple of Jesus is. Uh, so the question is, then, what is at the core? What is the core picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, if we want to learn what a disciple is, then just like if we want to learn what the purpose of the church is, we probably should go right to the source and, uh, and find out from Jesus. And so Don, uh, earlier in the, in, the, uh, in the service, read a passage from John chapter 15. And so if you're there, um, I want you to, to stay there and, and pull it up. If you're not, if you didn't turn there, I want you to turn there with me to John chapter 15, whether um, in your Bible if you brought it or in your Bible app. And we're just going to walk through this and we're going to see what is it that Jesus said about being a, a disciple. Okay, now the scene here is that Jesus is getting to the end of his ministry, and these are not his last words, but they're getting there, right? He's gathered together with his disciples, and he's starting to give them instructions on what they are to do or how they are to live after he leaves them. Okay, and so then he, this is part of him giving those instructions as he's preparing them for his departure. 
So let's start in verse 1. Okay? First, the first thing he does is he gives them a metaphor to start thinking about their relationship with him. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And then in verse 4 he expands it a little bit more. He says, so remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Okay, so, so not only is he, he expanding his relationship or expanding on how he's describing this relationship, he's starting to give some clues as to how this relationship works. Now, there's a point here in which the, the metaphor sort of breaks down. Um, and, and the point is this, is that Jesus says, remain in me and as I also remain in you. This is a command, right? This is what he's telling us to do. Uh, remain in me. Now, normally, a vine does not have to tell a branch to remain, right? A branch doesn't have will of its own. It, it either remains or it doesn't. And usually that's based on how powerful the wind is or when, whether someone comes along and, and cuts off the branch. But they don't, branches don't really make a choice as to whether to stay in the vine. Okay? But Jesus says, you have a choice. Okay? You can choose either to remain in me or you can choose not to remain. And in verse 5 then, he says this, says, he, he tell, talks about what will happen depending on what you choose. And here's where we start to see some of the elements of what we talked about before. Jesus says in verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? Now, here he's talking about power, isn't he? Okay? If you uh, are not in the vine, then you're not going to have any power. Uh, if you are in the vine, that's when you have power. That's when you have the power to be able to bear much fruit. If you're not, then you are powerless. Okay? So we, we see some elements of that. Okay? Skip down to verse 7. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then in verse 8, he adds this. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be what? My disciples. Okay? Bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. So how do we recognize a disciple? Well, a disciple is someone who bears much fruit. So the question is, what is that fruit? What is the fruit? Uh, is it knowledge? Is it right choices? Is it power? Is it working for justice? Is it evangelism? Well, yeah, probably all of those things. But Jesus actually answers the question for us. Um, starting in verse 9, he, he introduces a word that, that answers the question, and this is what he says. Okay, See if you can spot the word that I'm looking for. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. So what's the word that Jesus introduces in this paragraph? Love. Okay. What is the fruit? It's love. It's, it's actually the Greek word agape. You've probably heard that before. And, uh, it, you know, but we also find something really interesting here because not only is love the result of being a disciple, it's actually the means to be able to get there. 
Okay? I know that that sounds kind of comp- complicated. It's kind of circular there, but stick with me, and uh, let me explain a little bit what I'm talking about. And, and this is going to be maybe a conception of discipleship that you've not heard before, and so I want you to, I want you to stick with me, um, because I think that if you understand love and if you understand discipleship this way, it'll unlock a lot of other things in Scripture for you. Okay? Uh, there's a guy named Jim Wilder who calls himself a neurotheologian. Neurotheologian. Have you ever heard of a neurotheologian before? Okay. It's, uh, he's actually a clinical psychologist, but a, a strong believer. He's actually a close friend of Dallas Willard. And one of the things that binds he and Dallas Willard together is, is they are obsessed with making disciples of Jesus. They love Jesus, they want to be like Jesus, and they want to figure out how to teach other people to, to know and to love Jesus, to be disciples. Well, as they were talking over the years, there's one of the issues that they came to that I think is pretty familiar to all of us, it shouldn't come as any surprise to anyone, is that sometimes... Even when people know what we should do, for some reason, we just seem to be unable to do it. We just seem to be unable to do the things that we know that we want, need to do anyway. And not only that, as much as they wanted to change, they often seemed completely unable to do that. Okay? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, Wilder says that the problem is, is that we believe that we are driven by our will. In other words, we believe that we're driven by our conscious thoughts about what we're doing. And so we think that if we can just train our will to focus on the right things, if we can train our will to try harder, um, and, and, and then eventually we will develop godly character. Okay? But that comes from a, a misunderstanding about what godly character is or what being a disciple is. Because good character is not the ability to make a bunch of individual isolated choices. No, character is when we become the kind of person who automatically does the right thing every time. Okay? That's what character is. Okay? And it's not a conscious thing. It's, it's actually kind of a, it's a subconscious thing. It's something that you do automatically. Okay? And, and so the problem is, is that kind of character is not formed by our will. It's not formed by our conscious processes. Character formation actually happens in a different part of the brain. Okay? Remember, he's a neurotheologian. Right? Um, it isn't formed in our conscious mind uh, where we think really hard to try to do the right thing. Our character is actually formed by our attachments. And here's what he means. I used to think that <clears throat> agape love was an act of the will. And so I would talk about agape love at, at weddings. In fact, I, I did one recently. And, and basically how I descri- described agape is, is that it's this tough kind of love that will... Do, uh, that will think of the other first no matter what. Okay? And, I, and I described it in a way that had a lot to do with our, with our willpower, seeking out the other person's good even when we don't feel like it. But what, what Wilder said is, he says, that's not strong enough. But we have motivations inside of us, God-given motivations that are actually even stronger than our conscious willpower. Okay? And he... And he, he, he explains it. He explains agape by asking questions like these. He says, what sort of love will root and ground us? 
What love will send us into burning buildings to find a child? What love will search for decades for a missing loved one? What love will remember people who are long gone? What love will open the door to a prodigal child or search through the wreckage from tsunamis, avalanches, or earthquakes that threaten to collapse the building or swim through the floods? What love will face wild beasts, freezing winds, and certain death? We're talking about attachment love, which comes from the heart. And what he's asking is, is he's saying, is there a motivation, is there a love that is more fierce than the love of a parent for their child, or the child for their parent? It's the most powerful motivator we have. Like there, there, is, there is nothing that will, that will overcome that kind of a motivation. And that love doesn't come from our conscious mind or from our willpower. Okay? And it's formed far you know, early on when we're, when we're babies, far before a baby has any will at all. It's a God-given bond that is cultivated through joy-filled relationships. And you can see a picture of it when you think about a mother feeding her baby and the connection that happens during that time, or, or when their eyes lock on each other and that baby sees the, the face of his mom. And all of a the sudden, they start to think not just in terms of I, but they think in terms of we, right? In fact, all of us, you know, because we were babies at one point, thought of ourselves as we before we thought of ourselves as I. Okay, that's attachment. That's what he's talking about, that kind of love. And what Wilder says is that the real and lasting change only comes when we have this kind of attachment to Christ and we build our identity in him. And that thought helps us understand what the Apostle Paul talks about so much when he, said, when he talks about being in Christ. Okay. It's not just a matter of, you know, attending worship service or, or things like that. Being in Christ, finding our identity in Christ, thinking of it as we before me. Okay, now, I want you to think about that description of love as we continue on in this passage, okay? Love as, as, as attachment. In fact, every time I use the word love, okay, think in terms, you don't have to use the word attachment. For a lot of you, that's kind of dry and, and all of that. But, but think about this idea of attachment um, and identifying with someone, okay? So verse 9, and again, this is Jesus speaking. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. Okay, and so we might say that as the, the persons of the Trinity identify with each other and are attached to each other, Jesus says, that is the kind of attachment, that's the kind of identity that I have in you. And now he's asking us, I want you to have that same identity in me. Verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now, we have to stop here because the way we oftentimes think about keeping commands is that, we, you know, it sounds like Jesus is saying, as long as you keep my commands, then I will identify with you. As long as you're doing what I told you to do, then um, I will love you, okay? But, of course, we know that's not true, right? Um, but if you look closer, you also understand that's not what he's saying, Okay? Jesus says, if you keep my commands, okay, well, what is his command? Well, skip down a couple of verses to verse 12, and, and he says it very explicitly. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Okay, so if you keep my commands, you will remain in me. My command is, love one another as I have loved you. Okay, now, remember what we said, love is attachment. 
It's identifying with each other. And so rather than just giving a command, Jesus is telling us that, and, and you know, he's talking about disciples, he's talking about the church. He says that our attachment or identification with each other maintains our attachment to Jesus. You see what he's saying? Our attachment, our love for each other will actually maintain our identity with, our attachment, our love for Jesus. Okay? Now, the truth is, is we can see this kind of thing all over the place. For instance, when someone loses their faith, um, oftentimes we, we think of it this way, that, that they are sitting around in a room and they start to have questions about God, like intellectual questions about God. And so they go to the apologetics books and they look for answers and they don't find them. And then they start reading on the secular web and, you know, hear atheist arguments. And they're convinced intellectually and they say, well, I guess I can't believe this anymore. Right? Or, if, you know, turn it around. If, if there's someone who, you know, was, a, was an atheist or, you know, wasn't a believer, didn't go to church or anything like that, uh, oftentimes we, you know, pull out apologetics books and we say, well, if we can just convince them of the truth of Jesus, then they will convert. And, and the fact of the matter is, is, as important as truth is, that's not usually what motivates it. Okay? What typically happens, whether someone is converting to or away from faith, is more like this. They're sitting in a room or sitting with a group you know, that's, that's their group, that's their people, and they start to think, hmm, these people just really don't feel like my people anymore. And, uh, and then they meet someone or they come into contact with a group that looks different. And they start to, start to form some friendships. And they, there's something attractive about that group. And they, and they start to say, yeah, you know, I, I really like these people. And not only do they say, I really like these people, they say, I want to be like that. And then they start to try it on for size. And over time, if they're accepted, if they're welcomed, if they start to identify with that group, then they start to change their beliefs. And that's usually how it happens. Another example. How many of you have had a a teacher or a professor in school that you just really connected with? Anyone had someone like that? Yeah. Um, In essence, what you're doing is, is you're forming an attachment with them. Right? It's not just that you thought they were a good teacher. There's something about them. There's something more to it than just they give you good information. Uh, there's something that you, you like about them. And, and these are not just the teachers that you learn the most from. You actually start to become like them. You start to have conversations with them outside of class. And you hang on their every word because they're older and they're wiser. And, and you see, I like the way you live. And I want to be like you. And so then, not only do you listen to their instructions when it comes to math, but you start to get life lessons from them as well. And it's not just what they tell you that changes your life, it's how they live, because you want to be like that. And so when we think about it this way, what we start to understand is that discipleship is just as much caught as it is taught. I don't think, uh, Andrew, I I doubt that your dad, like, sat down and gave you lessons on how to be a Vikings fan. That's something that you just learned from, from modeling from being together, from relationship, right? Verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. 
Right? Have you ever had a, a family member who went away on a trip and you had to go pick them up at the airport and, and you went in and you met them at the baggage claim? You know, they were gone for a long time. And it's a family member. This is not just obligation, all right? This is someone that you actually like, you know, and, and love. Um, you know, what happens if you're thinking about Minneapolis airport, they come down the escalator to the baggage claim. You know, what happens when you see them coming down that escalator? Your, your face just lights up. It, it's joy, isn't it? Now, the few days before, you're anticipating it, and you're starting to get a little bit more excited, but when finally they're coming down that escalator, all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's joy. And you can look around, and this is happening in all kinds of different places. And, and like I said... When you're, when you're leading up to it, there's this sort of anticipation that happens, but when they get down there and you get to the point where you can embrace before social distancing measures were in place, of course, when you could, when you could actually hug, um, it made your joy complete. And this is what Jesus is talking about, because a lot of times we'll look at this and we'll say, well, why is, what is Jesus talking about? Why is he talking about joy here? You know, he's talking about love, and he's talking about remaining. Now he's talking about joy. So what, how does this fit? Well, here's how it fits, is that attachment creates joy, and joy deepens our attachment to each other. Okay? Now, this is, this is a different way to talk about discipleship than a lot of people do. A lot of people, when they think about discipleship, they think about boring Bible studies and, you know, sitting at home, quiet, fidgeting, trying, you know. We, we think about discipleship that way, okay? But that's not the way Jesus talks about it, right? He says, he says what you're doing is, is you're completing Jesus' joy and deepening your attachment with each other. Okay? The discipleship ought to be a joy. And so the question is, is does our discipleship reflect that? Okay? When we are being discipled, whether it's in small groups or worship service or one-on-one or modeling, you know, are, are we filled with joy? Okay? Does our discipleship reflect the joy that we can have in Christ? Well, as we start to wrap up today, I want to I kind of summarize it this way. Okay? To be a disciple of Jesus means to identify with Jesus and to learn from him by being with him. Okay? Let me say it again. To be a disciple of Jesus is to identify with Jesus and to learn from him by being with him. Okay? And that's different than just being a Christian. It's different than just being a church attender. Okay? And according to Jesus, both the fruit of being a disciple and the means to being a disciple is love. Okay? In fact, you know, love is the fruit of identifying with Jesus. Okay? So how do we gauge whether we're growing? How do we gauge whether we're becoming a, a better disciple? Well, I guess we have to ask ourselves that question. Is our love, is our attachment to God growing? And is our love and attachment to other people growing? And in fact, Jesus takes it a step further. Okay, if you look, for instance, in Matthew 5, 43 through 45, Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, agape your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, agape your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And then he ends the section by saying that even the pagans love people who love them back. Okay, but in the end, he says this. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we sometimes trip over this word perfect. We don't, we don't like that. I'm not perfect, right? Uh, but basically, that's, it's the word telos that means be the person that you were created to be. 
Okay, this is why you were created. Okay, and he says it in terms of when you are able to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that means that you have come to the place where you are everything that God created you to be. If you think about it in terms of attachment, you know, when someone is our enemy, we don't want to be attached to them, okay? We want to stay as far away from them as possible, okay? But love, that kind of love that Jesus is talking about, says, and it's not just a conscious decision that I'm making, how do I get to the point in my life where my automatic response to my enemies is, is I want to know you more. I want to love you. I want to seek your good. If If you want to challenge Say, all right, am I a fully formed disciple? How's it, what's your natural reaction when someone tries to be your enemy? So, how does a disciple become more like Jesus? Okay. Well, we'll we're going to spend more time talking about this during our focus season. And our focus season is going to start on September 20th, I believe. And, and we're going to do another round of soul training. But we're going to do it a little bit differently because a lot of time... And, Soul training is just our word for spiritual disciplines, uh, scripture and prayer and, and, and things like that. But we're actually going to do it a little bit different this time because most of the time when we think about spiritual disciplines, we think about them as individual uh, disciplines. So, you know, you go in your prayer closet and you pray there and you spend time in the word by yourself. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a very individualistic kind of thing. But we're going to talk about it in terms of what does it mean to practice disciplines together? How do we do this communally? Okay, so not only how do we engage Scripture, but how do we engage Scripture as a community? Not only how do we pray as individuals, but how do we pray together as a church family? Um, And so we're going to talk about that, and and that will hopefully make a lot of this um, even more clear. Uh, And and so, you know, to some degree, we use spiritual disciplines to help train ourselves, to develop our attachments to, to Jesus. But if we start to think about discipleship as as training like our natural responses, then we have to actually start to think a little bit differently than the old focus more and try harder method. Right? We have to say, well, what is it that helps us to develop our attachment to Jesus, our love, our, our deep, deep love for Jesus? Okay? So let me give you three examples of that. And, and like I said, we'll, we'll talk more about it as, as time goes on. Um, here's, here's the first one. Okay? Start with praying before meals. I know a lot of you are saying, well, I already do that. Right? Um, okay, but, but what we're learning today actually makes this critically important, and and here's why. Because one of the basic laws of attachment, in fact, the first law of attachment, is that we get attached to the one who feeds us. We're attached to the one who feeds us. Think about a mother and a baby. That's that's what creates that attachment. That's just the way God created us. Now, who is it that really feeds us? So when we sit down and we have this, you know, table full of food in front of us, rather than just praying our rote prayer, how do we pray a prayer that acknowledges that it's God that is the one that feeds us? When we do that, we train ourselves and we grow in gratitude. And we say, man, God, without you, we wouldn't have any of this. 
And, and we start to develop this, and, and gratitude and joy and all of those things are things that help develop, uh, that help develop this attachment kind of love to people. And so when we just take the time to acknowledge that, that God is the one who feeds us, okay, then we start to grow in our attachment. So that's a simple one, and it's good because it's one that you already do probably, right? So you just have to kind of change your mindset on it a little bit. Here's another one. It's to change, you know, another one, and this is just about changing your thinking patterns, right? How about this? Don't think about Jesus, think with Jesus, don't think about Jesus, think with Jesus. Now, there's some more uh, neuroscience background to, that, that can help explain this to you. I'm not going to go into all of that, okay? But when Jesus says, remain in me, he's talking about an ongoing relationship, okay? He's not just saying, you know, meditate on some of the things that I've said, you know, meditate on atonement theology, although that's fine. I mean, you can, you can do that if you want, um, but he's talking about an ongoing relationship. And so on a day-to-day basis, rather than thinking about Jesus, think with Jesus. Um, when I'm away from my wife, I, I think about my wife. Okay. But when I'm with her, I actually think with her, right? I don't, when, I'm, when I'm sitting next to my wife, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about her, right? But if I want to know what she's thinking, what she's doing, I ask her. And we have a conversation. And I don't have to wonder anymore because she'll tell me what it is that, that I'm thinking, what, what she's thinking. Okay? Now, remember this. Jesus is with you. He's always with you. you know, and when, when we think about someone, there's this sort of um, internal separation that happens. It makes me think, well, I'm thinking about her because she's not with me. Uh, the same thing happens with Jesus, right? If I'm just thinking about Jesus, it's hard for me to acknowledge that, you know what? Jesus is right here with me. And so rather than just thinking about him, let me think with him. And so talk to him like he's actually there. And, and not just during your prayer times that you set aside, but throughout the day. Jesus, what should I learn about this situation? Jesus, what do you want me to see here? Okay, Jesus, what do you want me to learn? Okay. And just practice being with Jesus. He's already with you, so you may as well talk to him, right? And when you talk to him, you develop um, an attachment. And, and, it, and it can't just be you apologizing to him all the time for things that you do wrong, right? Um, a lot of t- for a lot of people, their relationship with Jesus is based a lot on guilt and fear, and, and, uh, and that's, not, that's not the way he wants it. Remember that you are, are God's child, and he delights in you. Okay? Joy and gratitude are the strongest pathways to growing attachment. So learn to enjoy being with Jesus and being thankful. Okay? Third, this one has to do with our corporate identity. And I mentioned that, that Jesus said, if you love one another, if you identify with one another, then you will identify with me. Okay? So it's kind of based on that. And, and so let me just say this. Don't just go to church. Identify with your people. Let me say that again. It might take a little adjustment for you. Don't just go to church. Identify with your people. Okay? And what this means is, is that you have to do the relational work when it comes to being a part of a church community. And this is one of the things that we lose when we, we think about like worship service as a consumer kind of activity. Right? Because we don't think about ourselves as a community. We just think of ourselves as a bunch of people who happen to attend the same worship service. But that's, you know, biblically, that's not what we are. 
Okay, we are, we are a body, we're a, we're a community, and we need to identify with each other. Okay? And so we have to build a community identity on being people who follow Jesus. And so then we start, to, we start to say things like this. We start to say, well, we're the kind of people who love our enemies. Why are you doing that? Well, because I'm the kind of person who loves my enemies. And we are the kind of people who love our enemies. We're the kind of people who look out for each other. We're the kind of people who, who foster a deep sense of, of gratitude to God for everything that we have. Okay? We're the kind of people that live joy-filled lives. And it's not hard for us. We don't have to convince ourselves to do it, even during coronavirus. Okay? And when we take on that identity, it, it forms us. Okay? You have no idea how much being a part of a community like that shapes you. Well, maybe you do. Some of you have been believers for a long, long time. And if you were to look back and say, what was the thing that, that shaped me most? Why is it that I retained my faith over all of these years? Most likely, and this is what all the studies show, it's because you had a church community where there were people who, you know, some of them were, you know, obviously some were your parents, but some of them were not your parents. But they were people who cared about you and loved you and modeled what it means to, to love Jesus. Okay? You, were, you were modeled into a deep faith. Right? So, so it's critical. And, 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 and so that's why there's an even greater reason to do this, more so than just your own spiritual growth. Okay? It's for the future generations. Right? Why is it so important that we become the kind of people who future generations... This is something that I actually believe that, that God arranged in this church here before I even knew how important it was. You know, we, for a couple of years, wanted to hire a family ministry pastor, and now, of course, we've hired Pastor Abby. And, and when we were doing that, we thought it was the right thing to do. We thought it was something that, that God was calling us to do. But the more I've learned over the last couple of years, the more I realized how critical this is moving forward in the church. And um, in, a, in a few weeks, uh, Pastor Abby is going to preach, and she's going, it's going to be kind of a vision. I'm putting a lot of pressure on you now, but it's, uh, it's going to be kind of a, a vision for family ministries here, or actually intergenerational ministries. And, and one of the things she's going to say, so you better write this down, because I told people you're going to say this, all right, is that... Family ministry is not just a fancy name for children's ministry. Okay. It means that, that all of us, whether we're children, whether we're parents, whether we're teenagers, we all have a role to play in this. Because it's community that, that shapes us. When we have an identity with each other, it maintains our identity with Christ. And like I said, all the studies show that this is how faith formation happens in kids. It's not just about sending them off to an hour of Sunday school. It's about a whole life in a community that follows Jesus. And that means that there's a lot of pressure on us as leaders to, to make sure that we are not just creating, but maintaining that kind of a community. And you guys need to hold us accountable to that, right? Um, if, if you think, well, we're, why, we're not doing that, then, man, give me a call, send me an email, and say, hey, what's the, what's the plan here? 
How are we going to do this better? All right? Well, those are, those are just um, uh, a few ways to, to sort of think about this in terms of loving attachment to Christ. And, and it's a little bit different than what we often think about when it, when it comes to discipleship. But um, what would the church look like if attaching to Jesus and identifying with Jesus and, and leading other people to do that too was the sole focus of everything that we did. What would it look like? Well, we're going to find out because that is the mission of the church. And when we talk about discipleship, that's what we're talking about. Lord, thanks for today. And we thank you that you, as God, want to be attached to us. That you want to identify with us. And, and sometimes that fact just blows my mind. Like, why in the world would you ever want that? And it fills me with gratitude fills me with so much gratitude to know that the God of the universe not just knows my name, but is not embarrassed or ashamed of me, but wants to have a a deeper relationship with me. And so God, I, I pray for this church today. You know, as we talk about the, the sole purpose, the main purpose of the church being to make disciples, oftentimes that can be a convicting thing for me because I think sometimes I, I lose focus. But God, I pray that you would not allow us to lose focus because we believe that life with Jesus is just better. And so God, may the joy and the gratitude and the peace that we get when we spend time with you, when we live life with you, would spill out over to the people around us, that we would be intentional about forming that in our children, that we would be intentional about inspiring that in each other, that we would love each other as you love us. And that through that, this community would be one that would make disciples like crazy. God, we thank you that you are the power behind everything that we do. Just pray that you would continue to teach us and to grow us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.